Shalom. This is uh, January the 18th, 2009, and uh, for Brands Online, we are looking at our study in the Epistle to the Galatians. This will be uh, Lesson 10, which is a focus on Chapter 4. Let's begin with prayer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and safeguard you. May the Lord illuminate his countenance for you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance to you and establish peace for you. And our focus scriptures uh, that uh, we'll begin our study with uh, come from Galatians chapter 4 and also from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Galatians 4, 3, and then skipping down to verses 9 through 11. So we also, when we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental principles of the world. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, why do you turn back to the weak and miserable elemental principles to which you desire to be in bondage all over again? You observe days, months, seasons, and years. I am afraid for you that you might have wasted my labor for you. That's Galatians 4, 3, and then verses 9 through 11. 1 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And uh, as we can see, uh, just from these two scriptures, we it appears that uh, Paul, in Galatians 4, is uh, actually contradicting something that he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, you observe days, months, seasons, and years. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, those very instructions for days, months, seasons, and years, uh, if they come from Leviticus chapter 23, where we read about the Moedim, the appointment of the appointed times uh, of, of the Lord, then uh, then is it true that Leviticus 23 is for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete? These are some of the questions that we have. And uh, as you uh, saw in your workbooks, the questions that we looked at in beginning our study for uh, chapter 4 of Galatians, is the Old Testament the kindergarten of faith, symbolizing where we start, but we w- what we must leave behind in order to grow in faith? Uh, what does Paul mean when he criticizes some for being, quote, under the law, unquote? Does he mean that God's words contained in the Torah no longer have any guidance for the believer? And lastly, are there two covenants of salvation in Scripture? The Sinai covenant, the old way, and the new covenant, that is, the new way. <coughs> last week, uh, in the last lesson, Lesson 9, we saw that uh, Paul uses the phrase, the works of the law, 
in a way that did not refer to the commandments of God, but rather to the man-made rules that served as unique identification markers for uh, the group. An example we gave was, uh, and where we see this works of the law being used outside of Paul's writing, is actually from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we see that the uh, Qumran community actually used it as a reference not to the Torah itself, but rather those the, the sect's unique interpretation and rules uh, to define themselves over and against other sects within Judaism with regard to Torah instructions. Uh, an example that we gave was we saw that the army, uh, or excuse me, the instructions when the Israel was encamped as an army uh, included uh, the use of a spade or the uh, bearing of, uh, of human waste uh, so that it would not be in the camp. Uh, we see this as uh, uh, as something that the Qumran community understood to be a, a, uh, an instruction that had to do with uh, everyday life all the time, uh, not having uh, uh, facilities either inside or outside the camp, but rather that the, uh, that the uh, Qumranis were, uh, were to leave the camp uh, and uh, relieve themselves, and they carried a spade. They were called the people of the spade. They buried their... Uh, their, um, their, their waste. And so we saw that reading the instructions uh, from the Torah, the Qumran community added additional man-made instructions and gave every recruit a spade. Uh, so the spade became an identifying marker for them. So in the same regard, we see that, uh, um, in the same regard, we saw works of the law as falling into that same category. That is, this, that's the way that it's used in the, in the, uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls documents. Um, we also saw that the Judaism of the first century did not hold that there was a uh, works or salvation by works. Uh, this is being read into, uh, in an anachronistic way, being read into the scriptures, first of all by the, uh, by the early Roman Catholic Church, and then most markedly and most uh, um, obviously uh, in the, in the uh, Protestant Reformation. And we are reading, uh, reading modern or more modern theology into the scriptures and in, in interpreting it in a way that was not originally intended. So the idea that there was a works of law for salvation uh, is, is, is a faulty way of, of looking at it to start with because, as we saw, Judaism, Judaism uh, never held that you earned your way to salvation. It was by grace alone that a Jew had a part in the world to come. Obviously, uh, the only way that uh, a Gentile could uh, gain access would to become Jew, and that is that was that was the, this is the very thing that Paul is arguing against. We also saw in last week that uh, that the scriptures are full of instructions about uh, how the redeemed are to live righteous lives. That righteousness is not just something that's imputed to us. For instance, the righteousness of God is not simply uh, put upon us, although that is true. That's not where it stops. That righteousness that's put upon us uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the instructions that God's written upon our heart, as we see in Jeremiah 31 with the promise of the new covenant, uh, we see that those instructions are supposed to be then lived out. So we're supposed to not only have a forensic righteousness, a righteousness that we could stand before the judge of creation and he says, are you righteous? And uh, we say, uh, I have lived not have not lived a sinless life. However, the righteousness of Messiah has been applied to me. Uh, but also that uh, are those around us, those people that live around us, 
could also observe that same righteousness. The righteousness that's been given to us, uh, imputed to us uh, by Messiah's work, is also something that is producing, through the work of the Spirit, is producing a righteousness that is evident to others. Uh, a righteous uh, life. And that's where that's what we uh, left off from last week in uh, in lesson chap- uh, lesson nine from chapter three of Galatians. So we're picking up this week in uh, for lessons, lesson lesson uh, ten for Galatians chapter four, and we're going to start off right away in Galatians chapter four three. Uh, in, in Galatians chapter four uh, verses three and nine through eleven that we read at the very beginning, let me read them again real quickly. Um, uh, verse 3, so we also, when we were children, were held in bondage under the en- elemental principles of the world. And then when you skip down to verse 9, you can see what uh, some people would say are connected to this. But now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. Why do you turn back again to the weak and miserable element, elemental principles to which you desire to be in bondage all over again? You observe days, months seasons and years, I'm afraid for you that I might have wasted my labor for you. Now what we see is when we, when we, when we examine what classical Christian theology does with these verses, what we see is we see that well, they, they begin to equate certain things. Uh, the Torah or the instructions, the law of God is something that had to, be, had to go away because it was never able to, to do what, it was, what, what, what we thought it was able to do and that is to, to give us a sense of uh, of right behavior. It, would, it never served any purpose other than to show us what a failure we were. This is what classical Christian theology shows. And in addition to that, if you go back to it, you know, that's a, a weak and miserable elemental principle. You know, you're going to be in bondage to that. You're going to be in bondage to observing days and months and seasons and years. You're going to be in bondage to this. And Paul is warning them not to go back to these things from Judaism, but rather that they should uh, take the Christian things. Uh, to that, right off the bat, just common logic demands that we have to ask certain questions. Uh, common logic says that if Judaism had God-given days, observed days, months, seasons, and years, as outlined in Leviticus 23 and other places, then why are those weak and miserable, and yet the new Christian dates and days and seasons are now beneficial? Um, uh, for instance, if we don't observe days, I would ask uh, someone who would read, and by the way, I have had these verses quoted to me by uh, good Christian friends. Uh, if we don't observe days, then why is Sunday the day that you meet on? If we don't observe, uh, if we don't observe days, why do you celebrate the birth of Christ on the 25th of December? Why do you celebrate the resurrection of Christ, not in association with Passover, but on the first Sunday after the first new moon of the, of the, uh, of the uh, um, spring equinox? Why do you do that? Is there, is there something I'm missing? You're not supposed to... Those, are those not bringing you into bondage? And yet, the commandments of God from Leviticus 23 do bring one into bondage? 
So right on the surface of it, we can see that this logic is faulty to consider that Galatians 3, that Paul is speaking about days, the Sabbath as an example, or months. Uh, this will be the first of months, as, as uh, uh, Hashem tells us in Exodus, speaking of the month of Aviv or Nisan, the Passover season, or the seasons in the spring, rain, uh, the, the, uh, the spring seasons or the fall seasons, and years, the Shemitah year, the year of uh, rest for the earth, the Jubilee year. So is that what Paul's arguing against? On the very surface, we can see that, uh, in fact, what's happened is Christianity, not saying that all Christians, but Christianity as a theological system has replaced the very things that you find within the biblical Judaism with new things. So obviously, they're arguing against themselves. But uh, if you look below the surface, you can see that this is all a faulty argument anyway. Uh, go back into Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, and we, and, and, uh, and we read a very, uh, it's a very important word, elementary, uh, foundational. It, it, is the, it is the word petochos, and it, is, it means elementary and foundational. And then the next word, elementary principles, we see is the word uh, stokea. It is a. It's, it literally means things in a row. It's like numbers or letters are counted in a row, uh, standing in a line. But what it refers to in classical Greek uh, is, in fact, foundational elements of nature. Found within this idea of the foundational elements of nature, that is, earth, water, air, and fire, is this mythological uh, and this pagan philosophy, and it's a pagan philosophy not, not, not unlike modern evolution, and that is the, the defining of the way the world is and why the world works. Uh, the Greeks came up with a philosophical uh, reference to the stokeia, uh, the, 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 the foundational elements of nature, and they, re they are represented in the Greek pantheon. These are gods in their view. Uh, earth, water, air, and fire. Paul, in fact, in, in Galatians chapter 4, is warning the, the, the Galatian believers against going back into things that come from idolatry. And we're going to see, and you've, you've seen already in the study in the workbook, that even Philo, uh, or Philo as some people call him, the Greek philosopher, excuse me, the Jewish uh, theologian and philosopher that lived uh, in the decades just before the birth of Messiah, he also uses this reference. In talking about the way that God created the world, he actually talks about Stokea. And, and he uses these pagan influences. So there is, there is at least some parts of Judaism that has this tendency to want to use Greek philosophy, pagan philosophy, to describe the things of God. And so uh, Paul is warning them about going back into this. Uh, the idea that they were, that, that now that they come to know God, that they would turn back again to the weak and miserably, uh, miserable elemental principles. Well, first of all, they aren't Jewish. They come from pagan backgrounds. So to turn back would be to not turn towards the Jewish things, rather the things of Scripture, but rather towards their former pagan lives. And that's the way that we're going to, when we, when we do the exegesis on this passage, we're going to see that it reads much different that way. Um, Colossians chapter 2 also uses this word stokea. And in Colossians chapter 2, this is a classic, uh, again, this is a, just a classic uh, usage uh, of, of, uh, of these passages in this way to miss uh, interpret Paul to say the things uh, that to say Paul is saying things that he did not say that he 
could not say and still be considered to be a prophet of God. Colossians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Messiah. Basic principles of the world is talking about stokea there. That's the word being used. And not according to Messiah, verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, verse 10, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Now go to verse 16 of Colossians chapter 2. So let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance of is Messiah. Let no one Cheat you of your reward, cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angel, introducing those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from which, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows to the increase that is from God. Therefore, you died with Messiah to the basic principles of Stoichia. Uh, principles of the world. Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. With all concerned things which perish with using according to the commandments and doctrines of men, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, of self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, Colossians chapter 2 is treated very much like Galatians chapter 4 by classical Christian theology. See, it doesn't matter what you eat or what you drink, you know, the moon moons and the festivals and the Sabbaths, come on, this has all passed away. They were a mere shadow. In fact, if you read from, uh, for instance, the uh, New American Standard Version, it says a mere shadow. Uh, in fact, the word mere is not present in the Greek text. It says a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Messiah. The translators have chosen to take the two clauses, shadow of things to come, from verse 17, but the substances of the Messiah, the two clauses of that verse, and to make them in opposition to one another. And yet the word day is not always used for but. In fact, the word day in Greek is worth used as a conjunction. It is either negative nor positive. The translators have chosen to put the word but in there, when in fact it should be read, read as and, which are a shadow of things to come, and the substance is of Messiah. For those of you who have done studies with us on Brian's online uh, before, you know that we've taken this passage and we've showed how this passage is completely misrepresented in classical Christian theology, completely mis- misrepresented, not understanding the very things being said, but in the plain reading of the text, it is clear that it is not speaking of the Torah of God. Pay attention. Chapter 2, verse 8 of Colossians says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, Stoicheia, not according to Messiah. Now go down to verse, now go down to verse um, uh, 22 of chapter 2 of Colossians. Which all concern things which perish when using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Uh, beloved, uh, the Torah of Moses was not written, did not, was not invented by Moses. The Torah of Moses are the words of the living God written down and recorded by his, his faithful servant, the prophet Moses, who stands above all prophets save Yeshua, the Messiah. And if Moses cannot be trusted to have recorded accurately the words of God, then one cannot trust the prophet coming 
that is like unto Moses, speaking as the, uh, Stephen did in Acts chapter 7, speaking of Messiah himself, the prophet like unto Moses. If we are to say that the things that Moses recorded are not God's words, regardless of the fact that no more, uh, the most common phrase, Hebrew phrase in all of scripture is this phrase, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak also to the children of Israel, saying, the things that are recorded for us in the first five books of the Bible come from the mouth of the Almighty God. They are not the traditions of men. They are not according to Stoicheia, the basic principles of the world, a mythology, a pagan philosophy. How ironic it is that classical Christian theology is founded upon Platoism, is founded upon uh, origin, uh, origins philosophy, which was Platoism, uh, which was founded upon Augustinian philosophy, which is Platoism, which is founded upon uh, Aquinian philosophy, which is paganism. It is all paganism, is the basic concept of the theological philosophy that, that classical Christianity uses. How ironic that they would turn to the very commandments of God and say, those are wrong, and yet the things that we say are right. Now it's the other way around. They're the ones that are basing it upon, not upon the commandments of God, but the things that have an appearance of wisdom and false imposed religion, false humility, a neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Beloved, when we read that no one judge you in food or in drink regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, it is not speaking to those who, who, who would denigrate the Sabbath. It is speaking to us who treasure the Sabbath. Let no one judge you in this regard. Sadly, uh, it's been my experience that people who pull these scriptures out to show them to me and show me how I'm wrong in keeping the Sabbath, that when I ask them, why, why then are you judging me with regard to the Sabbath, they, uh, they're unable to answer. Now, this word stoicheia, this, this phrase, elementary principles of this world, found in Galatians chapter uh, 4, is talking about paganism. It's not talking about the commandments of God. Paul also uses an interesting phrase in Galatians chapter 4, in verses uh, 1 through 8. He talks about uh, being under the law. Let's read uh, Galatians 4, uh, 1 through 8. But I say, but I say that, no long, uh, that so long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a bondservant though he is Lord of all, but is under guardians and stewardship until the day appointed by the Father. So we also, when we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental principles of the world. That's what we just read from. But when the fullness of, the t- of time came, God sent out his Son, born to a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of children. And because you are children, God sent out 
the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer bondservant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Messiah. However, at that time, not knowing God, you were in bondage to those who are by nature not gods. Now, once again, we're going to see that classical Christian theology takes this very passage and reads it in, it, intentionally, it appears, intentionally to say what it does not say. Uh, it, it talks about being, uh, about being under bondage, that, that, you're, that we were held as guardians until the day appointed the Father, but now that the, when, the, when the fullness of time came, God sent Messiah born to a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. In other words, the law is bondage, and we need to be freed from that bondage. But if you read this, and you clearly read what it's saying, where, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Gentiles who were not under the law in that regard, were they? No, they're not under the law at all. They're, they're uh, as Romans chapter 1 says, they're under the law to themselves. So, so, and then in verse 7 of chapter 4, it says, So you are no longer a bondservant, but a son, and if a son, an heir to the, uh, of God through Messiah. Verse 8, However, at that time, not knowing God, you were in bondage to those who by nature are not gods. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to not people who follow the, follow the Torah. He's speaking to people who are formal pa- former pagans. You are in bondage to those who by nature are not gods. The bondage is found in idolatry. And that's what he's speaking against here. So the word under the law here is being used for another reason. It's not that, not, there's not that there's bondage under the law. It's that the born under the law, born to a woman. Now is it wrong to be born to a woman? God sent his son, to, uh, son, born to a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. Uh, so, so did he come to redeem those born of women? Yes, he did. And, and who is it that he came to redeem? He says he was born under the law so that he might redeem those under the law. He came as a Jew so he could redeem those who were Jewish. Is that not true? It's the identification marker is what he's talking about here. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. This phrase... And, and it's also repeated in 1 Corinthians. Let's read that real quick. quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews, so that those who are under the law, as under the law, I might win those who are under the law. Well, is, are we saying, if, if under the law is a bad thing, and we see that in Romans it appears that Paul's talking that way, he says, uh, you know, we're not under the law, but under grace. And this is a common uh, uh thing uh, told to people who uh, consider the Torah to be blessed. Uh, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Well, Paul here says he became as one under the law. So are you saying then that Paul uh, put himself under bondage into the Torah? Uh, and obviously, if you read the, the last book, uh, the last chapter of Acts, you can see that Paul says to himself, says of himself, he never departed the Torah. Paul's not talking about the Torah when he says those who are under the law here. He's talking about those who hold the Torah to be to be, uh, to be a, a lifestyle. They're identified as the Jewish people. It's an identity marker. Those who are under the law, it's an identity marker. He's talking about Jewish identity. It's idiomatic to Jewish identity. The word in Greek is hupo-naman. It means under the law. And in Galatians chapter 4, we see that he's using, he's using this uh, uh, as a starting place. In chapter 4, verse 21, he says, Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And then in verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one of the handmaid and one by the free woman. What is he speaking of here? He's using it to set the stage. He's, he's saying, I'm going to tell you a story about Abraham and uh, Sarah and Hagar, and uh, you who want to be, quote, under the law, 
Look, listen to what the law says. And he uses uh, the story then recorded in the Torah of Abraham and his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And he uses this phrase under the law. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of the same thing. Jewish identity. How could a Gentile be considered Jewish in the first century? There was only one way that he would be recognized by the identity of Jewish. By the Jews themselves. There's only one way. And it was through ritual conversion to Judaism. What did ritual conversion to Judaism entail? Do you remember? We looked at this before. We've looked at it a lot. It entailed a first an agreement, an agreement to abide by the whole Torah. And the whole Torah, as recorded in in the in the uh, in the uh, Talmud, the whole Torah says both oral and written. What was written is what we read when we read the first five books of Moses. What's oral? Those are the traditions handed down through generations. Uh, uh, are they bad? Uh, not necessarily. But the point here is that that was the first that was the first thing that was necessary for conversion. The next thing to Judaism. The next thing was circumcision. The last thing was a uh, excuse me. Then also uh, paying the temple tax. And then the last thing, of course, was immersion. And that when they come up out of the waters of of their ablution, as the Talmud records, they're an Israelite indeed. They're Jewish. Now, we know that that Paul is arguing against that can't make you Jewish. You can't change your genes by going through a man-made ritual. So, one of the the phrases to define those who went through ritual conversion was, obviously, circumcision. That was one of the parts, so they called it circumcision. Another thing they called it is to take on the law, or to be under the law. So, it's a Jewish identity marker, and Paul's using it as a Jewish identity it is idiomatic of Jewish identity. If you wanted to say someone's Jewish, it'd say those who are under the law, as we see Paul actually says that in that way. In chapter 5 of, of Galatians, verse 18, he does it the same way. He uses it idiomatically. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What is it to be under the law? And that is, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not going to be governed by these man-made rules, these man-made rules of how you need to become Jewish. If you're led by the Spirit, you're going to be considered part of the covenant community, part of the, co- the community of God, the people of God, the family of God, all Israel. You are considered a part already. You're not under the condemnation or the exclusion of men. You're not under that. Let's look at another uh, interesting thing that Paul does in, uh, in Galatians chapter 4. He tells this... Uh, he uses a, a homily, a, a, an analogy, actually calls it an analogy, a, a parable, of, uh, as it were, of, uh, of this, what he calls two covenants. Uh, um, he uses, uh, in chapter 4, verse 22 through 31, he talks about having, uh, of, uh, being uh, two women, you know, speaking of Sarah and Hagar, uh, two, two mountains, uh, that is uh, Jerusalem and the Jerusalem that's above, or Sinai and the Jerusalem that's above. Um, and he says, two covenants. Uh, but he uses this two mountains in an interesting way. Uh, and uh, anybody who, who spends time reading the Talmud, uh, you know that this word mountain is an idiom. Uh, it is an idiom for tradition or the ability to argue effectively from tradition. An example of that is found in Berchot, uh, in the Babylonian Talmud, Berchot uh, 64a. And, and quoting, This we can illustrate from the case of Rabbah, and he's speaking of Rabbi Bar Nachmani, and uh, 
Rabbi Yosef. For Rabbi Yosef was Sinai, and Rabbah was a uprooter of mountains. The time came when they were required to be at the head of the academy. They sent there and asked, as between Sinai and an uprooter of mountains, which should have the preference? Uh, these two uh, of, uh, sages of the third century uh, of the common era, Rabbi Yosef and, and Rabbi Bar-Nachmani, uh, actually it was their turn to come up. They, they basically were of equal stature and it was time for them to take, take over an academy, uh, yeshiva. And, and uh, in the taking over, they said, they, they, they sent word back and they, and they, uh, of it, those living in the land, who should be the head of this academy? Should it be the one that we call Sinai, speaking of uh, Rabbi uh, um, Yosef, or should it be uh, Rabbi Bar Nachmani, who we use, we, we call uh, an idiom uh, for him or a nickname for him, is Uprooter of Mountains, which should have the preference. And what's being said here is an interesting uh, idea: is that uh, um, uh, the Uprooter of Mountains is someone who can uh, argue effectively. Uh, he could argue very well, and Rabbi Yosef is Sinai. He, this one has, and, and Rabbi Yosef, he had, he had a, it's recorded, he had just an encyclopedic knowledge of the traditions. He just knew this stuff backwards and forth. So which one should we choose to be the head of this academy? Should it be the one that, has, that knows the traditions backwards and forwards, or should it be the one that could argue against those traditions? It's an interesting, interesting question. Uh, the uprooter, uprooter of mountains, though. To be an uprooter of mountains is someone who can, uh, who can cast mountains into the sea. Uh, this is, uh, Yeshua said in uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse 21, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also you will say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and it will be done. Uh, the, uh, Paul himself shows himself to be a masterful uprooter of mountains. One who can argue effectively. One who can uh, set the traditions back in their place. So in the sense that Sinai, speaking of Mount Sinai or Jerusalem, whose, whose children are in bondage, as Paul refers to uh, uh, um, in, that, in uh, Galatians chapter 4, he's not speaking uh, about the Torah. He's speaking about the traditions wrapped up in uh, the, uh, the seat of the religious community, which at that time, uh, under the auspices of the Sanhedrin, was Jerusalem. Sinai is a perfect way for Paul to refer to the man-made tradition for entering the covenant. Why? Because all Israel, that's exactly the whole idea of why uh, ritual conversion was even uh, considered. Only Israel took on the yoke of the Torah. Only Israel went into uh, the covenant uh, with God. And when did they do that? When they were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. And why, and why were they chosen to stand at the foot of Mount Sinai? Because they were all circumcised. And so uh, this is the argument uh, then. So to be at the foot of Mount Sinai, if you wanted to have a part in the world to come and you were Gentile, you need to be back there at Sinai. You need to be there. And the only way that you could get there is to become Jewish. And the only way that you could become Jewish is through ritual conversion. So Paul talking about this as Sinai is, is perfect. When we read, it, read this reference in the Talmud, we can see this is a perfect way of referring to the man-made tradition for entering into the covenant. Uh, but, you know, when we go back and we look at this, this very uh, thing that we're talking about, this, uh, uh, this uh, parable or this, uh, this uh, 
analogy that Paul's using in Galatians chapter 4 about uh, Sinai, uh, we, need to, we need to understand what he's talking about because he talks about two covenants. Let's, let's read the passage. Go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 22 through verse 31. Galatians 4, 22 through 31. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? That it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the handmaid and one by the free woman. However, the son of the handmaid was born according to the flesh, but the son of the free woman was born through promise. These things contain an allegory, for, they are, for these are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children to bondage, which is Hagar. This, for this, is Hag- this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers to the Jerusalem that exists now, for she is in bondage to her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, you barren, who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you that do, don't travail. But more are the children of the desolate than those who has a husband. Now we, brothers, as Isaac was, are children of promise. That as then, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it, is now, so it is now. However, what does the Scripture say? Throw out the handmaid and her son, for the son of the handmaid will not inherit with the son of the free woman. So then, brothers, we are not children of the handmaid, but of the free woman. Wow, this passage has been so misrepresented, so perverted by, by classical Christian theology, it's almost impossible to break through that impervious wall. But if you listen to what he's saying, we have to go back to the original story. Uh, you know, first of all, classical Christian theology says there's two ways. There's two covenants. There's the covenant of the law that was given to Mount Sinai. That was his covenant of salvation, but it was a failure. The why was it a failure? Because the people couldn't keep it, quoting from Hebrews. The people were people were, were unable to keep it. God used it then for their condemnation. He took the He took the covenant away from them, and now He has given it to the church. So Israel is no longer uh, uh, of any importance to God, other than to redeem them individually, one at a time. Maybe if they'll become Christians and stop being Jewish. Whereas the church now is the New Jerusalem. Uh, so when you read that with this picture, what are we doing? We're 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 perverting. We're putting on a, a, a set of glasses with a bias that allows us to see the things that are that 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 the theology of the Reformation and even before that of Roman Catholic theology that allow us to see things that are not there. First of all, there are not two covenants. Uh, Mount Sinai is not pitted against the new covenant. There isn't a Jewish way of salvation, which, by the way, was unsuccessful, and then a new Christian way. You know, by, you know, if you read the new covenant as it's expressed in Jeremiah chapter 31, you will see, and Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37 and 38, you will see not promises given to the church or Christians or Gentiles. You will see the promises are promised to the descendants of Jacob, the two houses of Israel, Israel and Jacob, or excuse me, Israel and Judah. These are not the promises given to Gentiles at all. My Gentile brothers and sisters, the only hope that we have is to be counted in the house of Israel. And that cannot be attained through ritual conversion or any other man-made means. Our only hope is to stop being pagan Gentiles. 
Yet Christian theology has in fact pitted the two against one another. This is the opposite of what this is saying. What is it saying? Two covenants. One's from Mount Sinai. As we saw, an uprooter of mountains. Mount Sinai is speaking of the children's bondage, which is Hagar. What's Hagar? What's the story say back in Genesis? Uh, God promised Abraham that he would bless him and that he would have a son. Seeds and a seed. A land and promises of an inheritance. Uh, Sarah is beyond childbearing years. She's completely beyond Abram as well, Abraham as well. So, uh, or excuse me, uh, Abraham is not. So, what does uh, what does uh, what does Sarah consider? I can't have children. But let's use Hagar. Hagar then produces Ishmael through uh, through Abraham produces Ishmael. This is the one that persecuted. He's the child of man-made means that persecuted the child that was finally born of miraculous means. God miraculously restored the womb of Sarah. She gave birth miraculously. It was of the spirit that we see Isaac being born, the child of promise. And so the child of the flesh is Ishmael, born through Hagar, is persecuting the child of promise. Do you understand what he's speaking about here and making this analogy, talking about this whole concept of ritual conversion? You can't do it by human means. If you can't patiently wait for the promise of God to be revealed in your identity, Gentile, if you can't accept the fact that those who are already born Jewish may not accept you, even though God does, you know, you're failing to recognize this. It, is, it, was this. it was this child of Hagar that was persecuting the child uh, of Sarah. Gentiles cannot enter through the means whereby which Ishmael entered into the covenant. Gentiles can't enter that way. Man-made means. Sarah's, uh, Sarah's idea through Hagar. That's not the way to do it. That's man-made. And that's his whole point of using this. So what are these two covenants? One covenant. One covenant. First of all, the word covenant means to, is, in Hebrew is brit, to cut. A brit milah is circumcision. Brit is to cut. So the word covenant and the word circumcision are the same word in Hebrew. So it's very easy to see how Paul, a Hebrew thinker, is talking about are these two covenants. And he's speaking specifically, and it's like a play on words. One is the covenant of circumcision. That's how you enter the covenant of uh, the covenant. Gentiles can go through ritual conversion. That's the covenant. That's the one that's represented as Mount Sinai. The tradition or uh, from Jerusalem that now exists and is in bondage uh, with her children. What is the Jerusalem that's coming down? The one from heaven that is above and free, the mother of us all. This is the Jerusalem that he's speaking of. This is the other city. This is another mountain. What is that? Speaking of the very commandments of God and the very thing that God promised, that all nations would be drawn, all nations would be blessed through Abraham, not by becoming... Jewish, not by becoming a uh, traditionally becoming an Israelite, but rather being part of Israel through the work of Messiah. And you know this proof that what we're talking about is, uh, with regard to Paul's uh, parable here, is is the real account of Sarah and Hagar. Hagar was the shortcut to fulfill God's promises. It failed. Sarah uh, 
God used Sarah to bring Isaac a child of promise. The promises of God are not made by man-made process. They can't, you can't inherit the promises of God through man-made effort. It's God's work only. That's his point. That's all he's t- saying. May it never be that anybody consider the, Paul, the, word, the writings of Paul to be against the very words of God. If you do, then you face the danger of Deuteronomy chapter, uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, of accusing Paul of being a false prophet. And if he is, we should not listen to him or follow him. Instead, let's consider the value of the Torah. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 24 through 25. We've looked at this verse before in the study. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good, always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. The law is for our good. Is righteous living for our good? Of course it is. Of course it is. How could it ever be considered not for our good? Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 19. Also, it shall be when he sits on the throne, he's speaking about the future king of Israel, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the pre- from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord our his God and to be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. The Torah. The, the king is to write a copy of the Torah. It's supposed to teach him to fear God. If the king of Israel is supposed to learn to fear God and to live by the instructions, why is King Messiah different? And isn't it good to fear God? The commandments, the Torah were given so that we might fear God. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 9 through 16 says, The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, as he rejoiced you over your fathers, if you obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law. And if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, for this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off, for it is not in heaven that, that you should say, Who will ascend into, unto, into heaven for us and bring it? to us that we may hear it and do it nor is it beyond the sea who should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it but the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it see I have set before you life and good, death and evil, that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments, His statutes, His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. This, Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 10. The Torah was given for our good. The Torah was given for us to do. Are we supposed to love the Lord our God and to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, His judgments, His statutes? Is it good to live? Ironically, the very book of Galatians tells us that you can't pick and choose. That if you want to live the law, that you have to keep the law. It's one thing. It can't be divided. can't be separated. And yet, it's this very thing that classical Christian theology has separated. 
Oh, yes, we do need to love the Lord our God and our neighbor as ourselves. No, we don't need to keep His commandments. How do you love God? How do you know you love God if you don't keep His commandments? How do you love your neighbor? How do you know you love your neighbor if you don't treat him according to the very things that God has commanded us? Cannibals think they love their neighbors. The only way that we can know that we love our neighbor is by the clear instructions from God Almighty. The Torah is for life. Psalms 1, 1 through 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law. But his delight is in the Torah of, of Hashem. And in his Torah he meditates day and night. Is it good to be blessed? Does the Torah have value in being blessing? Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. The Torah of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, causing us to turn. Turning the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The Torah turns the soul. It brings wisdom, joy, truth, righteousness. It is more desirable than gold. Its words are sweet. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 17 through 18. Her ways, speaking of wisdom, and if you follow chapter 3 of Proverbs, speaking of the Torah, her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. The Torah is a fount- The Torah is is a has ways are always pleasant ways and peaceful. It's a tree of life to those who hold fast. Proverbs chapter six, verse twenty-three: For the commandment is a lamp, and the Torah a light. Reproofs and instruction are the way of life. Is there value in that? John chapter 12, verses 49 through 50. Actually, let me go back to Proverbs 13, 14. The law of the wise is a fountain of life to those who to turn one away from the snares of death. The Torah is what? The Torah is a fountain of life. John 12, 49-50 For I have not spoken on my own authority. Yeshua is speaking here. For I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His command is everlasting, is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so speak. What did He speak? Did Yeshua bring new something new? A new way to God? A new way to live? What did he speak? The command. The Torah. He spoke it. He taught it. Ironically, the very people who claim that Jesus brought a new law failed to read his own words. He only spoke what he was given to speak. It's not a new law. It's God's 
holy and eternal law, the Torah. Revelation 22.14 Blessed are they that do his commandments, for they will have the right to the tree of life, and they enter through the gates into the city. How is it possible that people confuse that don't read this? Where does it talk about walking an aisle? Blessed are those that walk the aisle or raise the hand or said a prayer. It says, Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life. You know, the, the, the first page of scripture, as it were, talks about the tree of life and being denied access to the tree of life because we disobeyed God over something silly like what you eat. Eat this, eat of every fruit, but don't eat that fruit. I'm being facetious. Obviously, it's not silly at all. It's the very source of sin is to disobey even the smallest commandment. doesn't matter. doesn't really matter, the serpent said. God expects you to rise above this basic instruction, the serpent said. These are the same lies that are being spoken to people today. It doesn't matter what you eat. Jesus said it's not what goes into a person that makes him, uh, his, makes him holy or unholy, but what comes out of a person. Of course, complete misquoting of what Yeshua said. The first page of Scripture, we are denied access to the tree of life. And in the last page of Scripture, we're given access to the tree of life. And how is it that we're given access to the tree of life? The way that we lost it the first time, now we keep it. Blessed are those who do His commandments. They do what He told them to do. And we may enter through the gates into the city and eat from the tree of life. Adam sinned by disobeying God's command. And here we see the righteous live by keeping His commandment. It's for life. His commandments are for life. There's freedom found in the Torah. There's freedom. It's not bondage. Classical Christian theology looks at Galatians chapter 4. There's bondage. You're going back under the law. You know how, you know, woe is you. You're going back under the law. There's bondage. You're going to be a slave to the law. And anybody, of course, that's kept the Sabbath knows that being a slave to the Sabbath, if there was such a thing, would be wonderful. We are slaves to righteousness, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. And we should be slaves to righteousness. To be a slave to the Torah is not bondage. It's freedom. Psalms uh, 119. Of course, uh, classical Christian theology reads Psalms 119 and it, and it, and it simply uh, places words that aren't there. It replaces words that, that with new words. Uh, what is, what, you know, throughout the book of, of uh, throughout the, the, Psalm, uh, the chapter of Psalms 119, what we read is we read actually the words being used to describe the Torah. You know, the uh, mitzvot, the commandments, the edut, uh, the uh, the um, the witnesses, the testimonies, uh, the mishpatim, um, uh, uh, the judgments, uh, the Torah, the law. Uh, these are the things that Paul. This is, these are the things that David's speaking about in, in Psalms one nineteen. Psalm one nineteen one. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the Torah of the Lord. They're blessed. Psalms 119.77 Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Do you not want the mercy of God? There's freedom. There's freedom in the Torah. It's a source for God's compassion and for His mercy. 
Psalm 119.92 Unless the law, unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. It's to be our delight. It preserves us. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 6.15 what, sh- what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Well, are we under the law? Under, are we under grace? Absolutely. Should we continue in sin? Certainly not. Well, you need to understand what he's saying here. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4 says, Whoever commits a sin commits lawlessness. And the word there is anomia. Namas is law. Torah. And sin is lawlessness. Breaking the commandments of God is how you define sin. So go back to Romans chapter 6, 15. Shall, what then? Shall we, shall we continue breaking the Torah because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. That's exactly the way that Paul was thinking when he wrote it down. But we can't see it because so many of us are biased against the things that we think are Jewish. The Torah we think is Jewish. We don't understand that God gave the Torah to Israel to his people. The Jew, the native-born Israelite, as well as the, those who are mixed, of mixed, in the mixed multitude, those who came out of Egypt with Israel, with the native-born. First John chapter 2, excuse me, go back up to verse, uh, let's, let's read James chapter 2, verse 8, and, 8 through 12. If you really fulfilled the royal law, According to the scripture, by the way, the royal law, the king's law, this is Torah. You shall love, love your neighbor as yourself, quoting from Leviticus 19. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Transgressors, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery and said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have been a, become a transgressor of the law. So, so speak and so do as one who will be judged by the law of liberty. The Torah is the law of liberty. Does it bring judgment against those who break it? Absolutely. Does it bring judgment to those who strive to obey God because they love Him? No. It does not. First John 2, verses 3-6. through Now by this we will know, we know that we know Him if we keep his commandments. Pause for a moment here. Uh, which commandments? Which commandments? He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 5, But whoever, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Was Yeshua obedient to the commandments of God as revealed in the instructions given through God's servant Moses? Perfectly and absolutely. If you say that you abide in him, then you should walk as he walked. First John chapter 5, verses 2. 2 through 3. By this we know that we love the children of God 
This is what I was talking about before. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the new commandments as some teaches us. New commandments? No, actually those are from Deuteronomy chapter 16 and Leviticus chapter 19. They're not new commandments. They're old commandments. How do I know if I love God? If you obey him. How do I know if I love, know if I love my neighbor? If you... And here's what he says. First John chapter 5 verse 2. When we love God and keep his commandments... This is how we know if we love the children of God. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Paul is not talking in Galatians chapter 4 about the burden of the Torah. The Torah is freedom. You know, and one of the things that really bothers me a lot is the very condemnation of those who say that it's bondage is found within the Scriptures itself. Romans chapter 3 verse 31. Do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the Torah. Faith establishes the Torah. It doesn't make it void. And as a warning to those who would void it, who will nullify the very words of God because they think it's Jewish and it doesn't apply to them. Psalms 119 verse 126 says, It is time for you to act, O Lord. Hashem, act, for they have regarded your Torah as void. How long? How long will those who claim to follow the Messiah of Israel continue to teach that he abolished the very commandments that he gave? How long? It's, it's, it's blasphemy. It is nothing short of blasphemy to say that God does not expect His people to live according to His very instructions. It's blasphemy to say that Yeshua brought a new law. Jesus brought a new law. That's blasphemy. Deuteronomy chapter 13 says, Beware the prophet who leads you away from my commandments. Let's do a little bit of exegesis now. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1. And we'll go through and we'll try and read it. Read this chapter with maybe with a little bit different perspective as to what it's speaking about. But I say that so long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a bondservant, though he is the Lord of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the day appointed by his father. So we also, when we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental principles of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent out His Son, born to a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive the adoption of children. And because you are children, God sent out the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are, not, you are no longer a bondservant, but a son, and if a son, the heir of God through Messiah. However, at that time, not knowing God, you were in bondage to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, why do you turn back to the weak and miserably elemental principles which you desire to be in bondage to all over again? You observe days, months, seasons, and years. Here, here what is he saying? He's saying, don't turn back to idolatry. He's not warning them not to turn back to law. They weren't under the law. They, weren't, they didn't even consider the law to be valuable. They were pagans. Don't return back to that life of idolatry. And there were clearly, even within Judaism, philosophical Judaism, 
treated these same mythological elements, these elemental principles, stoicheia. He's speaking about these pagan concepts, the pagan calendar, not God's appointments. Galatians chapter 4, verse 11 through 20. I am afraid for you that I might have wasted my labor for you. I beg you, brothers, become as I am, for I have become as you are. You did me no wrong, but you know that because of the weakness of the flesh, I preached the good news to you at the first time. That which was from a temptation, that which was a temptation to you in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Messiah Yeshua. What was the blessing you enjoyed? For I testified to that. If possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So then, I have become your enemy. So then, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They zealously speak, seek you in no good way. No, they desire to alienate you, that you may seek them. But it is always good to be zealous in a good cause. But not, but not only when I am present with you, my little children, of whom I am. I am again in travail until Messiah is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now, to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Here Paul's warning them. He's reminding them. He was the one that introduced them to the truth, the kingdom of heaven. Clearly the influencers, those who are trying to tell them the only way to become, uh, have a part in the world to come is to become Jewish, to go through ritual conversion. They were the ones that were trying to... Uh, show them that they had to get into the covenant uh, by a means... Uh, were they the ones that were out there welcoming Gentiles before? No. They, they, they weren't ones seeking the Gentiles. He's the one that went and sought the Gentiles. He says, they don't want to help you. They're, to, they're there to mean you harm. They're trying to cut you off. They're trying to exclude you. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the handmaid and one by the free woman. However, the son by the handmaiden was born according to the flesh, but the son by the free woman was born through promise. These things contain an allegory, for, they are two co- for these are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answers to the Jerusalem that is now. For is, she is in bondage with her children, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Enjoice, you barren, who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who do not travail. For more are the children of the desolate than he than her who has a husband. But now we, brothers as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as then, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. However, what does the Scripture say? Throw out the handmaiden. Throw out the handmaid and her son, for the son of the handmaid will not inherit the son of the free woman. So then, brothers, we are not children of the handmaid, but of the free woman. The Torah of the the, the uh, excuse me the uh, the idea that two covenants is an analogy between ritual conversion and faith in Messiah as a means to enter into the promise. Do you want to be a child of bondage, having attained the status of son like Ishmael, or do you want to be a child of freedom, attaining the true sonship by the miraculous work uh, through Messiah Yeshua, just like Isaac was born? Obviously, it's not going through ritual conversion. It's very tempting. For those of us that already agree that the Torah of God is good and pleasant, to read all of these words with Paul of Paul, and simply chalk them up as a form and, and use them as a form of uh, um, uh, uh, are answering and arguing against those who are opposed to the Torah, then we need to be very careful not to use this book in that way, because this book is not about simply arguing against classical Christian theology. That also is anachronistic. In our pointing out the error of reading this book through the, through the prism 
uh, of the uh, Protestant Reformation, or even through the prism of second century uh, Christianity as it was founded, the danger is reading it only that way. We need to ask the question, as we read it that way, and as we try and discount it, and as we, as we show that's not what it's saying, we need to hear what it's truly saying, because it speaks to us. It speaks to us. It, it, it confirms for us the truth. And the truth is, whether Jew or Gentile, our only hope is through the work of Messiah. We need to be a part of the people of God in order to have a part in the world to come. In order to live lives that bring glory to God, we need to live as Yeshua did, which is completely and totally faithful to the Torah. Do we fail? Yes, we fail. Do we sin? Yes, we do. Even though he was not and he did not sin, we do. But those of you who study the Torah, that know the instructions given there, know that there's always provision for mercy. He is a God of mercy. He's not a harsh one who gives a law and gives no reprieve. That's man's law that gives no reprieve. God is merciful and gracious. He has made us truly his sons and daughters through the work of Messiah. Something that man-made rules can never do. There's two covenants. There are, excuse me, there are not two covenants of salvation that are being contrasted in chapter 4. All of the promises of God are contained in His covenants. They are always expanding in His covenants. They never oppose one another. They're never, never at opposite extremes. There's no such thing as the law versus grace because grace is found within the Torah of Hashem. God's covenants don't oppose one another. They always work together to fulfill His purpose and His will. And it's, it is to bring about His promises as He has said. Covenants are not an end to themselves. They're a means to satisfy God's promises. As we've seen in this study, there's, no, there's not a covenant of works and a covenant of grace in God's covenants. Hebrews 11 is 100% about those who lived, quote, before the cross. And yet they're members of the New Covenant. God did not do things one way before and now after another and new way. It is man's mind, man's Western mind that follows a linear scale. God does not follow a linear scale. Revelation tells us Messiah was, was the lamb slaughtered before the foundation of the world. God does not operate on a linear scale. There was not two ways of salvation. The old way and now a new way. There was only one way. The covenants of works are not found in Scripture. These are ones that man has made up. Ritual conversion is a perfect example of a covenant of works. But I would say that also some forms of Christian baptism too are a, mean, are a covenant of works. They're used... Both Catholic and Reformed theology provide for this. They're used to enter the covenant community. And by the way, that's exactly the replacement that they got. They came from circumcision. We don't do circumcision, we use baptism instead. Not understanding that the circumcision being spoken of in Paul's epistles 
is talking about man-made rules. So instead we have new man-made rules. I'll sprinkle you, and you've entered into the covenant of God. We'll do it with children, so they don't even have a choice. These are covenants of works. They're found in the theologies of those who are the most vicious haters of things that are Jewish. And they see all things in the law as Jewish and not as God-given. And when they start playing their little game of separating between those things that have been annulled and voided, you'll find that it is not the things that they keep, but it's rather the things that they say the Jewish people keep. That's what's been voided. The, the clear identity markers that God gave in Scripture. He said in, in Exodus that He gave the Sabbath as a means to sanctify, to set apart Israel. So what do they say? See the Sabbath, that's a Jewish thing. And what they fail to recognize is it's not a Jewish thing, it's a God thing. The Torah of the Lord is not bondage. Hashem gave it for freedom and for life. Let's close in prayer. This is from Tit Barak, which is uh, found in the, in the morning shakarit prayers, the morning prayers. May you be blessed, our rock, our king and redeemer, creator of holy ones. May your name be praised forever, our king. O fashioner of ministering angels, all whose ministering angels stand at the summit of the universe and proclaim with awe together loudly the words of the living God, the king of the universe. They are all beloved. They are all flawless. They are all mighty. They all do the will of their maker with dread and reverence. And they open their mouth with, in holiness and purity, in song and hymn and bless, praise, glorify, revere, sanctify, and declare the kingship of the name of God, the great, mighty, and awesome King. Holy is He. Then they all accept upon themselves the yoke of heavenly sovereignty from one another and grant permission to one another to sanctify the one who formed them with tranquility, with clear articulation, and with sweetness. All of them as one proclaim His holiness with awe. And they say, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Master of legions, the whole world is filled with His glory. May we answer and say the same. Holy, holy, holy are you. King of the universe. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.